0: The hymn we just sang was written by John Newton, who was a slave trader whom the Lord converted. Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And even though we still sing Amazing Grace, like we do here and at gravesides, very often, People do not see much that is amazing about the grace of God. The Apostle Paul was quite different. For him, grace was truly amazing. And particularly the grace of God in salvation he perceived as utterly amazing. We find this in the text. Where we read the amazing grace of God in salvation in Titus chapter three, verses four to seven. If you recall the background, Paul had left Titus on the island of Crete, located on the southeastern coast of the southeastern coast of Greece. He had left him with instructions to set in order the affairs in the church in Crete to raise up and appoint elders in the church and to deal with matters that were pertinent at the time. At the same time that he was writing the first epistle to Timothy, 1 Timothy, he also wrote this letter of Titus to his companion who was in Crete. Clearly, Titus had not completed the task that was given to him regarding the eldership and dealing with the matters in the church. And so in AD 63 or somewhere about there, he writes this letter to him. It is a letter in which he lays out for Titus and the church, then and the church now, the calling of the people of God to live unto God. And so there are many instructions that are given. It is a a, a text that is filled and laden with theology but it is also a text filled with instructions you'll find in the second chapter of Titus that he gives them instructions as to how they are to conduct themselves in the church he gives them individual instruction that is instructions to particular groups old men and older women and young men and younger women and this is how you are to live he tells them in the second chapter in these verses 1 to 10 but in chapter 3 Verses 1 to 11, he provides instructions regarding how they are to live, not now among themselves in the church, but how they are to live in society. And so he begins by telling them in chapter 3 that they are to be subject to rulers. They are to obey their political rulers or their political leaders. Christians are to listen to and obey and submit to those whom God has put above us in the area of politics. We have to listen to our mayor and our prime minister, and so on. Of course, that is always governed by the fact that that they are following the Lord. In other words, we cannot follow our political leaders if they are opposed and if what they are asking us to do is opposed to Scripture. But in general, we are called upon to obey those who have been established and set above us. We have to be ready for good works, he says. And so on. This is your relation in the political sphere. You have to follow the rules. You are to obey your rulers. You are to be ready for every good work. And in terms of one another, he says, we are to speak evil of no one. We are not to be malicious in our speech, speaking evil things, slandering others. Instead, we are to be peaceable and gentle, he says, showing all humility to all men. It is in this context of how they are to relate to others in society, even with those with whom they disagree, that he presents the motivation for this kind of behavior. And that's what you find in verses 4 to 7, a theological motivation or basis for how they are to conduct themselves. In fact, verses 4 to 7 in the Greek is very, one very long and complex sentence in the Greek. But the theology that is contained there is fairly straightforward. And that is what we want to look at. In fact, if you want to know what is the thesis, what is the main point that is found in verses 4 to 7, it is salvation that God has saved us. If you you read the Apostle says, But when the kindness and the love of God our Father towards man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. And this verb translated, he saved us, is the main verb. And it drives the entire section, the entire paragraph. He saved us. Everything before it. This is how you live in society. This is how you obey your rulers. This is how you speak. All of that is governed by this one verb, he saved us. Now our task today is to outline Paul's thoughts on salvation. And in fact, there are at least three ideas and insights that the apostle gives us regarding salvation. They are really simple. First of all, he says that we are saved by grace. Secondly, he says we are saved Through the renewal, the regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit and through the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. So we are saved through the Holy Spirit and through Jesus Christ. And thirdly, he says, we are saved for the ultimate purpose of eternal life. These are the three thoughts that I want to develop then in your hearing flesh out in the next few moments. First of all, he says that we are saved by the grace of God. What he begins to do in verse 3 is he begins to take them back to their former life. And there is this technique the apostle Paul uses in his epistles. When he, he, he says, this is the before picture. Look at what you were before. And then he says, look at what you now are. Look at the after picture. Well, he does it again here. And he begins with a picture that is fairly damning of their condition. He says, for we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. The reason I'm asking you to be kind to one another, to be peaceable, to be gentle with one another, is because you once were sinners. Uh, The Cretan, the people who lived in Crete, had a reputation. It wasn't a good reputation. We in Canada have a reputation wherever you go around the world. People think a certain thing about us. Recently, or a few years ago, some, someone was visiting from France and they came to Toronto and went to PEI, went to Quebec, or Quebec City. And when we had a conversation, We said, well, what do you think about Canada? And she said, well, the people are nice. And we couldn't understand what she was talking about. She said, Canadians are nice, she says. And she went on to explain how she gets on the bus for the first time. There's a French person here. And people are just falling over themselves to help her, to give her direction. She goes into the store. And unlike France, and if you are here from France this morning, please do not take offense. I do not intend offense. But when you are in a store in France, it seems that people don't really attend to you. They don't really come and ask you, what do you want? Or how can we help you? But here, she goes into a store. They're willing to help her to try on a dress or a new shoe. She said, people are nice. Canadians are nice. The people in Crete were not nice people in fact paul in the first chapter says that there is a prophet of yours who says the Cretans are always liars they're always telling lies he says that the same prophet says that they are evil beasts and lazy gluttons this is the reputation that they had they were a wild and rambunctious group of people and the apostle paul Reminds them not just of their reputation before the world. But their reputation in the, from the perspective of God. That these, these believers were once spiritually dull. Spiritually disconnected from the reality of God. Lacking in understanding he says of them in verse Two, you once were foolish. They lacked spiritual insight. They were deceived by the devil. They were worshipping false gods. The Christians, you know, believed that Zeus was born in Crete and that he died in Crete. You wonder how they could worship a god that was born there and died there. They were liars. They were blinded, spiritually blinded. They were disobedient to God. He, he's describing their past in their relationship to God. They were spiritually dead. He's dealing with the depravity of their hearts. That they, they were spiritually blind, lacking spiritual insight. That they were rebellious or disobedient to God. And where others were concerned, they were no better. Because not only within themselves were they given to lusts and pleasures but they were living in malice and envy and hateful, hating one another. So that whether you look at them in terms of their relationship to God, they were spiritually blind, in terms of their relationship to self, they were governed by their own lusts and sinful desires, or in their relationship with one another, they were filled with malice and hatred and anger. And he says, that's what you were. In fact, the Apostle Paul lists himself there. He says, we also once were foolish. That is the condition of nice people like us. We were once dead towards God. We're talking about spiritual depravity. We're not saying when we talk about total depravity that every man is as worse as he possibly could be. But what we are saying is that in every facet and in every dimension of our lives, we are corrupt. Paul says your condition in sin was one of pervasive depravity. You were not spiritually in tune with God. You were not living properly governed by the will of God, nor were you living right with your neighbor. It is with this very dark backdrop that Paul now paints their present reality and points out to them the grace of God which saves them. See, the first argument is that we are saved by the grace of God. And Paul develops this idea in verse 4. He says, but, that's what you were, but, he's signaling a change. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior towards men appear, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. The Apostle Paul attributes their salvation to three attributes of God. First of all, he says, when the kindness of God appeared. So that they were saved by the kindness of God. This is a term that was used generally in society. It refers to that which is beneficial and generous and helpful. It is from God's generous nature. You see, this is a synonym then of grace. He's saying, in other words, you were saved because of God's kindness or his goodness or his grace. You see, God's grace is His kindness to, to us who are incapable of recompensing or compensating Him for what He has done for us. It is from God's nature that we are saved, from His kindness. The second attribute to which He attributes their salvation is the love of God. For when the kindness and the love of God our saved towards men appeared, they're saved because of God philanthropia. This is a term that refers to the general love of mankind. But in this particular context, it is referring to God's love, a love which transcends mere emotion, a love that delights in his people, a love that demonstrates itself in sacrifice. In fact, it is from the love of God that we know that we are elected. Our election comes from the love of God. Paul makes that clear in Ephesians 1 verse 4. He makes it clear elsewhere when he says, But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you brethren, beloved by the Lord. Because God chose from the beginning, chose you for salvation through the sanctification of the Spirit and by belief in the truth. In 2 Thessalonians two thirteen, Our election, the fact that God knew us in eternity and chose us to be his children, it is because of God's amazing love the love of God is not only the basis of election it is the basis of the incarnation it is the reason why Jesus Christ came and the text says that but when the kindness and the love of God towards God our savior towards men appeared so God's love manifested itself concretely when Jesus Christ came into the world That the appearance of our Lord in the world was not that he was on a fact-finding mission. Or he was merely here here as a tourist on vacation. When the Lord came into the world, he came because he manifested God's love. He was sent by the love of God. And so salvation is by the love of God. Our election is by divine love. The incarnation of Christ. The satisfaction of Jesus on the cross is by divine love. Uh, Paul in Romans chapter 5 can say in verse 8, But God demonstrated his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the cross, not only the incarnation, is a demonstration of the love of God. And the writer makes it clear. That their salvation is rooted in the kindness of God, rooted secondly in the love of God. A love that is sacrificial by nature. A love that is self giving, a love that is eternal, a love that resides in the heart of God for His people and manifested in the cross of Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that He gave. You see, it is a giving love, a saving love. It is the basis of our satisfaction. The writer will also give a third attribute of God from which salvation arises. But before he gets there, you notice what he does there? He wants it to make it very clear. He says, but when the kindness and the love of God our Savior towards man appeared. And then he introduces a caveat. In fact, he takes a dissenting position. He says, not by works of righteousness which we have done. Lest there be anyone who thinks that salvation is based upon their good works or their character or their conduct. He says that salvation is not by works of righteousness which we have done. This, this, this kind of language, of course, you'll find it in the major epistles like Romans. And you'll find that in books like Ephesians and Galatians. But here the Apostle Paul, because he wants to establish that salvation is by grace alone, says it comes from God's kindness, it comes from God's amazing love, and it comes not from ourselves, not from the work we have done. Our salvation is never dependent upon us. This leads him then to give the third characteristic, the third attribute of God that caused him to save us. He says, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy. Here is now a term that refers to the compassion, the elos of God, the compassion of God. It is that attribute in God that responds to misery. It is God's pity when he looks at people in their misery and in their pain. And when God saw us in our wretched state, not only did his love and kindness go out to us, but his mercy, his compassion, that deep movement which the Hebrew thought came from the balls, that God was moved deeply to love us and to show us mercy. You see, all of this, in shorthand is to say that we are saved by grace. By attributing salvation to the kindness, to the love, and now to the mercy of God. And, and by bordering this with the, with the idea, not by your works of righteousness. By introducing grace later. Where he's in verse 7 where he says, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The whole text bristles with this idea that we are saved by grace and by grace alone. So he's talking about the source of salvation, attributing to God's grace, God's character. But secondly, having told us that we are saved by grace, he says that we are saved Through the regeneration of the Holy Spirit and saved through Jesus Christ our Savior. Here now he's talking about the means. How does God go about saving us? I want to preface what comes next with a clarification. We are not to read what Paul says here as a logical chronological order of salvation. He's not doing what or giving us what some theologians call the order salutis, the order of salvation. We talk about an order of salvation. We see that in Romans chapter 8, for example, 28 and following, where Paul talks about what God has done in eternity in the past, in predestining us to salvation. How God in time, uh, having done so, called us and justified us and, and finally glorified us. There's an order there. But Paul is not seeking to follow that order of salutis, that order of salvation. What he's doing simply is to bring to our minds and hearts two ways, two means by which we are saved. And the first thing he says is that we are saved by the work of the Holy Spirit. A work that he describes in two ways. He says, he saved us in verse 5, Here is the means, through the washing of regeneration and through the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So we are saved through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Whatever you take these two concepts to be, that is, regeneration and renewal, we must settle at least on one thing. That the text is saying, we are not saved by ourselves, we are saved by the Holy Spirit. The work by which the Holy Spirit saves us, he describes as first regeneration, palingenesia. And palingenesia is a compound word. Palin simply means before. And genesia means birth, genesis, in the beginning. And so palingenesia put together means a new beginning, a new birth. And this term then refers to the means. He calls it the washing of regeneration because in In God making us new, there is a cleansing that takes place. He says that we are saved by the washing of regeneration and by the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Anachinas, renewal, anachinas. A a, a term that at the very root of the word is new. We are saved by the regenerating work of the Spirit and the renewing of the Spirit. What he's arguing then is that we are saved by the work of the Spirit. And we are going to suggest to you that the work of regeneration and renewal are not to be seen as two separate tasks or works of the Spirit. But they are really one. And so renewal is actually amplifying, explaining this new life that is given. You know that because of the grammatical concern, at least the grammatical feature of the text. The, the, The preposition dia through appears before regeneration and before renewal. And so it governs both regeneration and renewal. If Paul wanted to say that we are saved by two different processes or two different ways of the Spirit, he would have said we are saved through the regeneration of the Spirit and through the renewal of the Spirit. But he doesn't do that. He says you are saved through the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Spirit. They are one and the same. What is he saying? Well he's saying that when the spirit of God saves us, he saves us by making us new. This is not a foreign idea. You go back to the book of Deuteronomy which means the second giving of a the law. There in chapter 30 verse 6, Moses having given to them the law of God. Expounded the law in their hearings, makes a significant statement. He says to them, The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the heart of your descendants, that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul, and that you might live. You see, what Moses is saying is, I have told you what God demands, I've given you the Torah. I've expounded all of the intricate details of the law, the cultic law, the ritualistic part of the law. I've told you all about that. But there's no way you can do that unless God does something in you first. And that's something he calls it a circumcision of the heart. God must give them a new heart, programmed with righteousness in order to serve him. You see, Moses calls this Washing of regeneration and renewal, he called it a circumcision of the heart. And then you come to the prophet Isaiah, or rather Ezekiel, in chapter 36, verses 25 and 26. Ezekiel describes this renewal by which they are saved as receiving a new heart. And so he says, Then I will sprinkle clean water. The Lord is speaking. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from your filthiness and from your idols. I will give you a new heart. And put a new spirit within you. And I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh. And give you a heart of flesh. What is Ezekiel saying? Is there by the Kabar River. His people are in captivity. And yet he brings them a word of hope. That God is going to do a new work. Not just in the nation, but in the individuals in the nation. God is going to give them a new heart. He's going to take out the old, stony, tough heart. And give them a new heart, a new disposition. He's going to give them a heart that is tender towards God, that seeks to serve God. It's a new heart, this renewal and regeneration of which Paul speaks. Jesus describes this renewal in John chapter 3. In perhaps the most famous passage regarding regeneration in the scriptures. Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. And he comes, he says, Teacher, we know that you are from God because no one could do the things that you are doing. And Jesus says to him, unless a man is born from above, unless a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And what our Lord is saying, Nicodemus, you need more than education. You may be the teacher in Israel. You may be uh, the greatest academic in all of Israel. But you need more than a brain you need more than intelligence you need a new heart you need to be changed you need spiritual life you need a spiritual renewal unless a man is born from above he cannot see the kingdom of God he cannot even enter into the kingdom of God Jesus calls it a new birth Paul calls it a new creation therefore if anyone is in Christ he is a new creation Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. He calls this renewal a new man. He says that we have been created according to God in true holiness and righteousness. What we are describing then, the means by which we are saved, is by the powerful, supernatural, irresistible, and miraculous work of the Spirit of God. That the Spirit of God comes into a person's life and dethrone sin and Satan, and replace sin and Satan with Christ on the throne of our lives. He comes and he does a work within us by giving us new dispositions, new attitudes, new desires, new motives, new interests, new goals, new habits. What are we saying? We are saying that if a man or woman is to be saved, God must do a work of spiritual renewal. He must make us new people. He must give us a new heart with a new desire for him, a new holiness. And listen, this newness he gives us, the spirit himself becomes in us the principle of newness and renewal. It is a spirit who is within us, As the principle of holiness and newness of life. I want you to understand. that What Paul is describing here is the subjective side of life as B.B. Warfield puts it. We generally think in terms of salvation as being forgiven by God. And that is true. We think of it as being justified and we'll see that later on that is true. But salvation has this subjective component. Why? Because when we sin, sin does not only make us guilty, sin pollutes us. So if we are to be saved, God must do something about our legal state before him. But he must also do something about our pollution. And this is where the spirit of God comes. This is where the spirit of God makes us new, gives us a new heart turn us away from our sins and turn us to God and, and, and plants, implants within us a principle of righteousness. That is the supernatural, unaided work of the Spirit of God that we do not contribute to. He does it independently of us. It is all of grace. You need to know, my friends, that salvation is not only a declaration in heaven about you, Salvation is God doing something in you. And you're not saved until something is done in you. Where the moral direction of your life has been changed. Where the spirit has changed your mind and changed your conduct. There has to be a renewal, a spiritual renewal if you're to be saved. Paul emphasizes this subjective aspect of the work of salvation. And he tells us that this renewal that we have received, this regeneration and renewal, he says comes to us through the outpouring of the Spirit on us by Christ. In verse 6 he says, Whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. What he's saying then is that the Spirit that we receive, we have received him through Jesus Christ who has poured him out on us. The language of pouring out, Takes us back to the book of Joel, where Joel in chapter 2, 28 and 29, prophesied that indeed the time would come when God will pour out his Spirit on all flesh. And on the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit of God descended upon the nascent church, the church gathered in Jerusalem, in What appears to be tongues of fire and so the disciples began to speak in an unknown tongue in in a foreign language. Those who were looking on were amazed. And Peter brings them back to Joel chapter 2 and says that what Joel prophesied in the last day about the pouring of the Spirit has now come to place in Jesus Christ. And so he explains that. He tells them. He says therefore regarding Christ. Being exalted to the right hand of God, and have received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. So the Spirit is poured out by Christ. It is interesting in chapter 10 of Acts, when the Gentiles in Cornelius' household heard the gospel, and they were converted. One of the, the signs that they were converted was that they began to speak in an unknown tongue. And Luke, the evangelist who writes the book of Acts, says this. He says, Now those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles, Acts ten, forty five. He says the Spirit of God has been poured out. So I'm, I'm, I'm pointing to two other places. One in Acts chapter 2 and now in Acts chapter 10. Where the description of the Spirit is that he has been poured out. And what the writer Paul is doing is tying into this language to, to make us understand that when God gives the Spirit, of God, the Spirit to us. He gives him by pouring him out. He gives him to us in other words extravagantly. He doesn't just give us a little bit of the Spirit. He gives us all of His Spirit. That we have the Spirit of God Himself in us. We are saved by the whole Spirit, not part of Him. And Christ has has poured Him out, Peter says. And Paul says the same thing here. It's interesting, this language of pouring out. It appears in Scripture very often in the book of Revelation to refer to the pouring out of the wrath of God. Instead of God pouring out His anger and wrath upon us, He pours out His Spirit who saves us. He pours Him out through Christ. So we are saved by the work of the Spirit who regenerates us. But we must not, note, we must not overlook in the text, he says, that we are saved not only by the Spirit who regenerates and renews us, but we are saved, he says, by Jesus Christ he says in verse 6 whom he poured out that is the spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ and then he says our savior I don't want to linger here but I think it's significant that he describes Jesus Christ as savior if you go back to verse 4 who does he describe there as savior he describes God the father as savior he says, but when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior, appeared, that is in the coming of Christ. He calls God Savior. This is one of the favorite designation for God in the pastoral epistles. 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. But the same designation that he uses for God, Savior, he now uses of Christ. He says the Spirit has been poured abundantly in us through Christ, our Savior. The reason that Christ can send the Spirit to us it is because He is Savior. Put differently, it is because He has furnished salvation, because He has paid for our sins, that He is able then to send to us the Spirit. Salvation is the work of Christ the Savior. It it means that Jesus Christ is God because he's using the same language for God the Father, for Jesus Christ the Son. It was a well-known term, sutter in the ancient world. The emperor of Rome could be seen as a Savior. A military leader of the Roman army could be seen as a Savior. A philosopher or a teacher who delivers somebody from ignorance could be seen as a savior. But Jesus Christ is a different savior. If you want to know how he saves, then you have to go back and look at what he says earlier. In Titus chapter 2, 13 to 14, he describes the salvation that Jesus brings. He says that we are looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and savior, Jesus Christ. Notice he calls him God there. And he calls him savior. But now he tells us how he saves. He says, who gave himself. Who gave himself for us. That he might redeem us from every lawless deed. And purify for himself his own special people. So Jesus is a different savior from earthly saviors. They can save you from warfare. Or from some difficulty. But Jesus Christ saved you from that and much more. He saves us from sin. And how does he save? He saves us by giving himself. By dying on the cross. By bearing the weight of our sin. We, we see Jesus on the cross sinking to the very lowest depths. When in the cry of dereliction he says, my, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But we see that that was not the last cry of Jesus. He was able to cry, it is finished. Because he has come to pay the price. He has come as a ransom to die for our sins. It is a a salvation that delivers us from our guilt. Delivers from the curse of the law. And delivers from eternal condemnation. That's the salvation that Jesus brings. He says, you are saved then by the renewal of the Spirit. You are saved by the redemption of Jesus Christ who gave himself. So we notice two things. We notice that we are saved by grace. We notice that we are saved secondly through the renewal of the Spirit and the redemption of Christ. But there's one more thing he tells about salvation. And that is found now in verse 7. That is, we are saved for the goal of inheriting eternal life. So he says to them that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs together or heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And Christ saves us, He also justifies us. He declares us righteous. That's our status, as I mentioned. Salvation has these two elements it has that subjective element where we are changed, we're made new by the Spirit. It has that objective element where God declares us righteous. We're justified, we are free to go, there's no condemnation. You know, the justification, you know, it's like you it's like. Your spiritual passport, that's what gets you into heaven. That, that, that gives you a legal right and title to heaven. Because God declares you not guilty before the law because he has already declared Christ guilty. Even though he knew no sin, Christ took our guilt. And so legally, God has no more charge against us because Christ has satisfied them. We're declared righteous, that's how we are saved. Then God changes our hearts. Regenerates us and then renews us continually by the work of the Spirit. But all of this salvation that God has wrought is to this goal he tells us. That we might become heirs. We may become heirs of God. We may become children of God. Entitled to the hope of eternal life. That that is what he's saying is that the reason that we are saved. We are saved First of all, on the basis of God's grace, saved through the means of the Spirit and Christ. But we are saved for the goal and purpose that we may have the hope of eternal life. In chapter 1, Paul talked about eternal life. He reminds them in the very long introduction in chapter 1 of Titus, Paul, a bond servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth, which are caused with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. Eternal life, he says, is that which God has promised before time to his people. And eternal life, as we have said in, on many occasions, must not be perceived as mere duration, living on and on and on for eternity. That's true. But it is much more. Eternal life is to share in the life of God. It is eternal fellowship and communion with God. It is to know the joy of God forever. That's eternal life. A quality of life sharing eternity with God himself. And that's the goal, he says. You have been saved for the hope that you may become an heir of the hope of eternal life. So let me summarize what we have said. Salvation is by the grace of God. Salvation is through the work of the Spirit and the work of Jesus Christ. And salvation is for the goal and purpose of eternal life. It is our business to reflect upon salvation by grace. We mustn't be ashamed to think and to speak. And to praise God for grace. Why? Because in the next verse. Paul in verse 8 says. This is a faithful saying. And these things I want you to affirm. It is our duty. To over and over again. Affirm salvation by grace. It's part of the Christian maturity. It's an essential Matter and point in the gospel that we are saved by grace, and you and I must live this life thanking God for grace, and we must continually be doing that. We must remember that we are not our own saviors, we must remember where we once were, that we were not nice people, we were sinners, condemned, and unclean. We are not saved by our work. That is why Horatio Bonar is absolutely correct. Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. He goes on to say, Thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. Thy love, O God, to me, not mine to thee can rid me of this dark unrest and set my spirit free. It's by grace, and by grace alone, it comes from a God who looked upon you in kindness and in love and in pity and was moved to save you. That he chose you in his grace and he saved you by grace. We are saved by grace and by grace alone. And it's our business to say praise be to God for grace. We are children of grace and we stand, we are saved by grace. We stand in grace. It is grace, all of it. The sending of Christ. The choosing of us for salvation, the sending of Christ, the giving of the Spirit, all of it is grace alone. And you and I must reflect and worship. We must thank God for quickening us and renewing us, that's our obligation. But this passage would want to have us know that this grace that God has given for which we should be thankful and praise Him, it's a free grace. I understand the redundance, but it's necessary. It's free grace. And it's available to all. But you are to seek grace. You must be born again. It's interesting that Jesus says to Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. But he also told the disciples, unless one becomes like a little child, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. You and I must become like children. We must humble ourselves and go to God for grace. You see, faith and repentance are not works. These are gifts of grace. When, when Christ changes the heart, he gives you faith and repentance. And you are to believe in Christ. You are to go to Christ. You ought to commit to Christ. You ought to change from your allegiance to self and Satan, and let's be very clear that if you are an unbeliever, you are on the side of Satan. You cannot be the other way. But when you become a Christian, you must, you must choose sides. You must turn away from the side of Satan and turn to the side of God and Christ. You must change allegiance. You do that by repenting, by turning from sin. You do that by trusting in Jesus Christ. It means you commit yourself to Christ. You rest on his work on the cross. You say, Jesus Christ, I take you as scripture reveals you to be God and to be my savior. And I look to you and your finished work as the only basis of salvation. But you must come in humility. You must take hold of grace by faith. You must trust in Christ completely and Christ alone. Because this grace That saved Paul and saved those in Crete is the only grace that is able to save us. One which we look to Christ and to Christ alone. But this passage reminds us that we have every resource for living in the world. I want to suggest that we live in terrible times. You cannot look at the laws that are passed. Regarding human life and sexuality without realizing that these are dangerous days in which we live. But even though we live in an age of great immorality and ungodliness. We need to know that we are still required to deal graciously and kindly even in our speech one with another. Even though we disagree and vehemently disagree. The part of our calling is to show grace. We who once were just like the rest of humanity in sin. Must also be willing to show grace. Not accepting. But being kind. Respectful. Dignified in our treating and treatment of one another. And we have the resources. To live in a dark world. We have the resources of the triune God. You should not overlook in this passage that we have a doctrine of the essential, what is called in theological terms, the essential trinity, that is God in terms of his inner life. God revealed in his inner life as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Right here in verses 4 to 7, we have a doctrine of the trinity. He says but when the kindness and the love of God and God there refers to God the Father very often in the New Testament wherever you see God it often invariably refers to God the Father when you see Lord in the New Testament it is often invariably referring to the Lord Jesus Christ so you see the first person of the Trinity God he says that we are regenerated and renewed by the holy spirit the second person of the trinity and that we are justified we are saved through jesus christ who is the son adoption of the trinity we see the essential trinity god in the workings of his inner life but we also see something of what is called the economic trinity That even though god the father and god the son and god the spirit are co-equal in their being and essence There is a subordination in the text. There's a subordination in the Godhead. Because it is the Father who takes the initiative for salvation. It is He who loves. And we are not saying that all the persons of the Godhead are not involved in every aspect of the work. They are because we talk about the doctrine of perichorosis, That God indwells God. The Spirit indwells the Son. The Son indwells the Father. And so whatever the Father does, the Son does. But notice that the text does give the initiative to the Father. And it is the Father in what we call this economic trinity, this order or taxes in the Godhead. It is the Father who sends the Son. We talk about the procession of the Son because the Son proceeds from the Father. The Son comes into the world because he's sent by the Father. But you see this economic trinity, this... Submission in the Godhead, where the Son is sent by the Father, but we also see the procession of the Spirit because the Spirit is now sent, poured out, and is poured out through the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we have then is an amazing statement on the riches that we have to live the Christian life. We have the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. United in our salvation. There is another passage. In fact, there are many other passages in the New Testament where we see the Trinity. But in one of them, in 2 Corinthians 13 verse 14, Paul tells us what it means to have the triune God. He says, now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Spirit be with you. You see, what you and I have to live the Christian life is not mere willpower. We have the triune God. On our side, we have the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have the finished work of Christ that we may live for him. We have Christ who is our high priest in heaven who daily gives us all that we need to live godly and to live holy. And we have the love of God. This amazing, eternal love of God. A love that Paul in Romans 8 described that is so great that there is nothing in creation, there is nothing in the physical world or the spiritual world that is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ. We have all of God's kindness, all of God's generosity, all of God's mercy to help us as we wage warfare in this world. And Paul says we have the communion, the fellowship. We have in this world the resource of the Spirit who not only gives us a new heart, not only accomplishes spiritual renewal, but is indwelling us, changing us from one degree of glory into another. We have the Spirit, we have His power and we have His presence to live this Christian life. You have every resource to live in a dark and sinful world because you have the triune God in his grace, in his love and in his power and presence dwelling with you. You must live this life then depending upon God to live holy, to control your tongues, to live peaceably, to treat others with respect. Because part of that, Is fulfilling the mandate of the Christian in the world which is to adorn the gospel. You see Paul tells them in chapter 2 verse 10 that their job is to adorn the gospel not pilfering but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Our job in this world is to show the beauty of Christ to so live that we are lights in a dark world by our conduct, by our treatment of one another in the church, by our treatment of others outside, that they're going to know that you're different. So when you go to work, because you have the triune God working in you, you don't just go to work for yourself. You're helpful to your colleagues. If they're having difficulties, you come in and help them. Why? Because you see, you're you are adorning the gospel. You're making the gospel beautiful. Because you have the everlasting almighty power of God, the triune God with you, adorning the gospel. And as you live the Christian life, you must always know that you live the Christian life not by looking down, but by looking up, knowing that there is a great hope that awaits you. Hope of eternal life with God. That it really doesn't matter how bad it becomes here. This is temporary. But what is everlasting? And eternal and bright and glorious is yet to come. I don't want heaven here. And I hope you don't want this to be your heaven. There's much more to come. We have the hope. We are heirs of the hope of eternal life. May God grant you that you know that you are saved by grace and thank him for it. That you're saved through the Holy Spirit and through Christ. And that you have the entirety of the Godhead willing to help you. And enable you to live. And that you live with your eyes on heaven. The hope of your calling for Jesus sake. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord we thank you for. What you have done. And we thank you for. The grace by which we have been saved. And we ask you Lord to. Renew us continue changing us and making us new. We pray that you may transform us by the renewal of our minds. By the indwelling spirit. That we might adorn and beautify the gospel in a dark and wretched world. Remembering that you have saved us by grace. And so Father we pray for your people. We pray that you would help them. Thank you Lord that even though we are weak And we ourselves are failing. We are imperfect. We thank you that we are your own because we have your spirit. And so we pray, drive us on, lead us on, carry us on, we pray, to live godly and upright lives in a wicked world. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.